Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with our political scientists, Sarah Mitchell, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hello, Sarah, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Chris Larimer with us as well, Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls. Chris, Happy New Year and welcome to you as well. Thank you. Happy New Year to you both. We want to welcome our listeners as well to this very first politics day of the new year. Uh, It's a good resolution to have to note (laughs) our telephone call, uh, our telephone number and email to participate in all of our River to River programs, 1-866-780-9100, or River to River at iowapublicradio.org if you prefer to get in touch with us via email. Uh, Politics this year looking no less interesting than last year at the start, just a few days into the year. In just a a little while, we'll want to ask Chris and Sarah uh, about each party's priorities in this divided Congress, uh, the George Santos controversy, where the January 6th investigations go from here um, now that Democrats no longer have control of uh, the U.S. House, also uh, going to some foreign policy with how the war in Ukraine will continue to shape our politics. But first, uh, the the breaking news happening right now. Uh, Some background first. Yesterday, Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California, failing to win the House speakership in three rounds of votes after 20 Republicans rejecting his bid. It's the first time that's happened in 100 years. The House in session now, they reconvened about an hour ago, and as we speak, the fourth roll call vote for Speaker taking place, and uh, McCarthy appearing to lose this fourth vote as it nears the end of this uh, roll call. Uh, Note here, none of Iowa's U.S. House members, all Republicans, joining that revolt against uh, uh, McCarthy. Uh, Sarah, start us off. <laughs> this is very interesting for a political scientist, isn't it, to say the least? <laughs> yes. Uh, if you look at the number of times there's been more than one ballot on the, the Speaker of the House elections, you know, most of them, with the exception of 1923, happened before the American Civil War, and a lot of them very early in the country's history. So, um, so this is a really unusual uh, it's kind of interesting that the last time this happened in 1923, you you had um, a, a lot of allies of President Harding that had been defeated, Republican members um, in the, the House uh, House election, and then it created a much smaller margin. And so, and some of those, what were called the La Follette insurgents, wanted to liberalize the House rules. And that's kind of interesting because some of the arguments made by uh, people like Chip Roy are very similar, right? Arguing that the House rules um, keep the power in in a small number of hands. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he was arguing, you know, for example, try to eliminate these omnibus spending packages um, as a way of, of trying to erode some of that centralized power 
Um, and so I think it's kind of interesting that there is a historical analogy here to the last time this happened. Mm-hmm. Chris, weigh in here on the history or, or your other thoughts. Uh, there's so many facets we want to explore here. Let me throw out to our listeners as well. Uh, listeners, if you have any questions about this current House leadership battle, join our conversation. Ask a question of Chris or Sarah, one 780 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Chris, what's top of mind for you? Well, I think, you know, just what a lot of people have already discussed over the last 24 hours is just, you know, the the division within the Republican Party and how this is something that's really been um, come to the forefront over the last, you know, 10 to 12 years, even going back to the 2010 election where we had kind of the emergence of the Tea Party mm-hmm. and a focus on government spending. And that's what we're hearing in a lot of the demands from the 20 Republican members who voted against McCarthy yesterday and, and today is, you know, they're making demands about government spending. As Sarah mentioned, they're making demands about changing the, the house rules. Uh, one of those demands being ma- trying to make it easier to oust a speaker of the house if, if they desire. Uh, but then, you know, going, for, going forward, what's going to be interesting to watch is, is how, how is this resolved? And, you know, do you do you cave to those demands? How do you get past this? And what does this mean for the the big question that everybody's talking about is what does this mean going forward in terms of how the House, how Republicans in the U.S. House govern in terms of what they talk about in spending? There are so many big things potentially coming up this session, probably number one being the, the debt ceiling that's set to expire at some point this this spring. Uh, you know, how, how are they going to look at that debt ceiling? Are they are we going to see a repeat of what we saw in 2011, 2013, mm-hmm. where we had these debt ceiling crises to the point in 2011 where the credit rating of the United States was was downgraded? So I think, that you know, there are just so many moving parts right now it, that it, it's hard to know. But I think just thinking about those demands and then thinking about the governing process itself, you know, what does this mean for public policy in the United States. I think that's the the big question that's out there. Yeah. It does appear that McCarthy has lost this fourth vote that is continuing right now. Um, Opposition uh, to him, all, um, let's see, 20 defectors voting in the Republican ranks for Representative Byron uh, Donalds. I want to have you react, uh, Sarah, you on this, uh, to um, some interpretation of this by a fellow Republican, a, a House member here in the Midwest. Representative Lisa McLean told PBS's NewsHour, Jeff Bennett, uh, yesterday evening that the inability to elect a House Speaker is a sign of good debate. Uh, she claims that, that did not exist under former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. We should note that Representative McLean of Michigan uh, is an election denier who voted against certifying Arizona and Pennsylvania electors in 2021. We've watched the past two years of dictatorial leadership by Nancy Pelosi, where nothing is debated, nothing is discussed, it is just one party rule where, where the Speaker of the House makes the decisions and whatever she says goes. And now what you're seeing is you see democracy working. Debate is healthy. Debate is good. Disagreement is not disloyalty. When we both debate, that gets us closer together. Really, it doesn't get us farther apart because what happens when you debate and you disagree, you begin to give and take. 
and the conference becomes stronger. And really, that's what I see. I don't want a one-party dictatorial leader. I want to be able to have debate and discussion. Okay, this Republican revolt, a good thing, according to uh, Republican Representative Lisa McLean of, of Michigan. Sarah, what do you think of that interpretation? Um, I think it's <laughs> definitely maybe a minority view. So most analysts are saying that, um, you know, that this is showing that, that the party is not unified, that it's going to have a hard time uh, legislating, right, under this very uh, minimum, you know, they have a small um slim lead right in the house and so it's going to be difficult for them to to pass legislation and i think you have to remember that these negotiations have been happening for weeks right so mccarthy has been talking to members of the the house freedom caucus for quite a long time and they made not only these demands about rule changes but also some demands about uh, committee assignments um and the thing is like they even with these lists of demands they said that that wouldn't necessarily they wouldn't necessarily vote for him, even mm. if they he gave into those. Yeah. So, so, so Sarah raises the question: What is the goal uh, here of these twenty-something some Republicans here? If they they don't have the votes to elect a leader themselves, um, they're not necessarily going to uh, go with uh, McCarthy, even if their demands are met. What do you see as their ultimate goal? Well, I think some of them are, they don't have a goal in terms of a party goal. They have individual goals in terms of, mm. uh, you know, getting getting their name out there, getting recognition. So it's kind of like building, um, you know, fame for themselves for some of these instances. Um, it's also in some cases that they, they are, they do believe in a sort of obstructionist uh, ideology, right? So, so that and you sort of saw that with some aspects of, of Steve Bannon, for example, the sort of like burn the government to the ground kind of ideology. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we won't spend, if we don't spend, you know, if we can't meet as a Congress, then we can't spend any money. Right. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, we, think- so we won in a certain sense, if you're <laughs> of that Republican conservative ideology, right? Yes. I, I think there's a certain obstructionist aspect to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also, you know, of the, the 20 members here that voted against him, you also have five new uh, congressmen coming in and another probably seven or eight that were have just been in office for the last one or two cycles. And so these are a lot of new uh, congressmen who have been elected from districts that have been drawn in a way to be very non-competitive. And so you're you're getting uh, people that are further from the right on the spectrum that are getting elected in into these districts. Um, and so the, and if you look at the, uh, you know, political scientists have uh, what are called nominate scores, but essentially they, they put a congressman's vote on a left right spectrum. And what's happened in the last 20 years or so is that the, you know, the median Republican position has moved quite a bit to the right, mm-hmm. whereas the Democrat position has stayed, uh, you know, fairly similar to where it was 20 years ago. And so, so I think, you know, this behavior is sort of representative, not only of that shifting uh, ideology to the right, but also, uh, you know, sort of indicative of this uh, kind of anti-system, deny the out- election outcome 
you know, it's all part of the same kind of uh, approach to governance. Mm -hmm. If you've just joined us, Sarah Mitchell and Chris Larimer with us on this Politics Wednesday, our political scientists, uh, obviously dealing with the breaking news right now. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, appearing to lose the fourth roll call vote for uh, speaker. And remember, the the U.S. House can take up no other business until it has a speaker. Uh, That's just the the protocol. Chris here, you know, we talked about this as an indication of our hyper-partisan times. I wonder Mm -hmm. if in earlier times, I don't know how far you would have to go back, where a Republican in this situation might say, or, you know, a leader in this might say, well, can I get a few votes from across the aisle? Um, And why isn't that happening now? Well, I think you answered it with where we are now in terms of a very hyper-partisan atmosphere. where the electorate is polarized, where members of of Congress are extremely polarized, as Sarah mentioned, in terms of their ideology, in terms of uh, their voting behavior and voting patterns. Um, And so there's really no incentive for those members to try to cross party lines because of the fear not only of being punished in a general election, but potentially being punished in in a primary election. So the incentive is really gone um, for a lot of these members to to try to engage in compromise or try to reach across party lines because um, there would there would be severe electoral consequences for them. Mm-hmm. Um, let, let's uh, finish up at least for now this conversation. We have other things to discuss on this Politics Wednesday by having your takes on where this is headed. Uh, we're in, well, <laughs> since 100 years, uncharted territory. Uh, Sarah, what, what are your thoughts on, on the scenarios we can see playing out? Well, I think one perspective is that you shouldn't negotiate with extremists. Um, I've heard people, you know, using the analogy to terrorism, um, because if you negotiate with extremists and you give in to demands, then they're just going to make more demands, right, in the future. Um, so it's not going to stop uh, the the extreme demands that, the, that are being brought. So that's kind of one view is that McCarthy mm-hmm. should just hold the line and have as many votes, uh, you know, just keep them in the House as go long on, as Go needed. on for days, weeks? Could it? <laughs> yes. Yes? Uh, well, I'm just saying, like, that's one perspective. I think mm-hmm. I think the other perspective is that because the, the Republican majority is so, is so slim, you're going to need, right, some of these 20 congressmen to pass legislation, even for for things that the party uh, wants to do. And so so you can't really afford to isolate 20 members, um, you know, uh, of your party yeah. so, so that you have to find a way to to negotiate a compromise uh, mm. in the situation. Although mm. it's hard to see what that looks like, given that yeah. they've already spent several weeks trying to negotiate it. Yeah, Chris, l- look into the future and see what do you see there in, in the immediate future? Maybe it will be today, tomorrow, <laughs> weeks could be. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I agree with Sarah. I think it's hard to envision what this compromise is going to look like because they've had all this time to set this up. And, you know, yesterday you have 20 votes for Jim Jordan. Today you have 20 votes for uh, Byron Donald. Donald's from Florida. Uh, you know, it, it, it makes it really hard to see how this is going to play out. Does McCarthy keep doing this in the hopes that at some point um, there's a break? Uh, these The 20 members who have voted against him have been extremely public and very committed in their demands and their frustrations with 
McCarthy. So you don't, you know, you wouldn't expect a lot of movement there. Does does McCarthy hold on and hope that public opinion would somehow shift in his favor, where there would be more pressure? I, you know, that seems unlikely as well, given some of the districts, as Sarah mentioned, where these members are are coming from, being relatively safe. Uh, I, I think it, there's just so much uncertainty right now in terms of how long this is going to take, and then who the alternative would be if it's not McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Let's step uh, across to the other uh, chamber in uh, Congress, uh, to um, because it was their, their first day as well. The U.S. Uh, Senate there, a reminder that um, Iowans uh, re-elected U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley to his eighth, his eighth Senate term, uh, joining Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst. Um, uh, she has another four years remaining in her uh, term uh, for that uh, seat. Um, Senator Mitch McConnell, now the longest-serving Senate party leader. He surpassed uh, late Monta- the late Montana Senator Mike Mansfield, a Democrat who served 16 years. Uh, he used his time on the Senate floor yesterday to honor Mansfield's legacy. Last November, my Republican colleagues reelected me to another two-year term serving our conference as leader. The greatest honor of my career is representing the Commonwealth of Kentucky in this chamber and fighting for my fellow Kentuckians. But the second greatest honor is the trust that my fellow Republican senators have placed in me to lead our diverse conference and help them achieve their goals. Clearly, Mike Mansfield was a complex and fascinating Senate leader for reasons far beyond his longevity. The scholarly Montanan was not an exciting idealist who transformed our national discourse, nor was he a policy entrepreneur who brought to the leader's role his own sweeping wish list of federal programs. Mansfield made a huge impact through a different road by viewing the role of leader as serving others. Well, that and the fact that he always enjoyed big, stable majorities on his side, often well in excess of 60 votes, helped as well. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, now the longest-serving Senate Party leader. Uh, Let's uh, go over to the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, uh, giving uh, a few of the floor remarks here during the opening day of the 118th Congress yesterday. Uh, He didn't give a detailed forecast of his party's priorities. I want to ask our analysts about that. Uh, He applauded, though, the Senate's bipartisan accomplishments during the previous term. With no margin for error, this majority enacted the Historic Inflation Reduction Act and confirmed the most diverse collection of judges, 97 in total, in American history. With bipartisan support, we enacted a historic infrastructure bill. After decades of trying, both sides passed the first gun safety bill in over 30 years. We approved the Chips and Science Act, passed the PACT Act, and stood with our friends in Ukraine. And just a few weeks ago, both sides worked together to enact marriage equality and the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. All of this done in an equally divided Senate. All of this done with a narrowly divided House. So I hope we can continue to get things done, even with a narrowly controlled Republican House. For whoever ends up becoming Speaker of the House, I hope they will find a way to work with us in a productive way this Congress. Senate Democrats are ready to reach across the aisle and across the Capitol to accomplish big things that will benefit all Americans. 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a yesterday floor remarks at the opening of Congress. Another bit of history. Let me just throw in this uh, before we go to uh, Chris uh, and uh, Sarah. The uh, Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington, elected to Senate President pro tempore. That was yesterday. That makes her the first woman to hold the job since its inception, and that puts her third in line of presidential succession. And if you remember, uh, our U.S. Senator, Grassley, when Republicans were in control of the Senate, held that position for some time, um, uh, 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 conducting affairs in the Senate when the vice president is not there, which is uh, most of the time. Chris, comment on the on the Senate side of things here with the, I guess, 51 to 49 majority with uh, for the Democrats, a couple of uh, several independents caucusing for the Democrats. Yeah, I think, you know, for for some Democrats, you know, the, the challenge for them is obviously going to be what do they do with with a republican controlled house and and at this point not knowing the direction of the leadership in a republican controlled house you know they've as senator schumer just outlined they a number of big bills went through the senate this past session um in particular just recently last month the the big omnibus spending bill um that was part of a continuing resolution that needed to be passed to continue to fund the federal government um, and, and now, you know, they're looking ahead, they're going to be taking their cues a little bit from President Biden. President Biden is, you know, by traditional schedule, is supposed to submit his budget the first week in February. But lately, that's been later and later in the year. But looking for policy priorities from President Biden, mm-hmm. uh, looking for direction on, you know, as I mentioned, the debt ceiling, that is going to be uh, a big issue, as well as the issue of immigration, um, you know, that continues to come up where uh that, you know, we, we had the recent Supreme Court ruling on the issue, but, you know, you, you'd expect some movement there as well. So I think Senate Democrats have a number of things on their on their plate, but also waiting for a little bit from uh, President Biden. Yeah, about a minute left before we go to break. Sarah, your expectation, thoughts for a divided, divided Congress as it is is forming and where there are so many uh, questions to answer. Uh, what are your thoughts at this point? Well, I think on the one hand, uh some political science research suggests that divided government can be good uh, in terms of, uh, you know, historically anyway, in terms of being productive. I'm not sure how that's going to play out, like as we were talking about in hyperpartisan times. Um, but on the other hand, I think because Democrats passed those bills under unified government, they're, that's why they're, they're doing a victory lap with a lot of their, their speeches, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> trying to, to show that we came out of this narrow era of unified government and so reminding people that before we move into a divided government period. Okay, we'll be back in just a moment with political scientists Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Chris Larimer of the University of Northern Iowa. We invite you to join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. When we come back, we're going to talk about the fact that Iowa's congressional delegation is now all Republican. And that hasn't happened for decades. Uh, And we want to ask our analysts what we know about the politics of U.S. Representative-elect Zach Nunn of Iowa's 3rd District. That's when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at Des Moines Metro Opera.org. 
And we're back with this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Politics Wednesday today with Chris Larimer and Sarah Mitchell, our two political scientists, Sarah of the University of Iowa, Chris of the University of Northern Iowa. We invite your questions and comments, 1-866-780-9100, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. Our email, uh, much of last half hour, talking about uh, the breaking news going on right now. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Republican of California, um, again, um, the, um, enduring the revolt of fellow Republicans, some 20 of them, now the fourth ballot appearing to lose that uh, for his quest to become Speaker of uh, the U.S. House uh, as uh, the Republicans have taken control of the House since the November elections. Um, I want to read a, a, a comment from Kevin sent in by email, Kevin of Mount Vernon, uh, before we move on here to talk about Iowa's all-Republican congressional delegation now. Kevin in Mount Vernon writes, the calm tone of your show suggests that what we have happening in front of us is the staid old Democrat-Republican debate about uh, what tax levels should be or what percentage of GDP government should claim. The literal elephant in the room, Kevin writes, is the downward spiral of dysfunction, sedition, borderline treason of the current bomb-throwing GOP, many of whom want to burn government to the ground. Almost 70% of the House voted no on certifying the 2020 election, and many would still not confirm Joe Biden's win. House members have continually pandered to delusional nonsense regarding conspiracy, anti-vaccine lies, anti-government, rapture-addled QAnon nonsense, and that January 6th was, quote, just a normal tour instead of an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States. End of quote from Kevin in Mount Vernon. Sarah, let me turn to you. What about our calm tone here and and, <laughs> and g- giving perhaps some gravity that Kevin seems to be seeking there? Well, past callers might not agree that I have a calm tone. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that, I mean, <laughs> I agree that, you know, when we talk about 20 members of the Freedom Caucus being, you know, the, you know, the extreme of the party um, that th- ignores the fact, right, that something like 70 percent of the Republicans, uh, you know, would not recognize that Biden won the election. And mm-hmm. so so I agree that, you know, and McCarthy himself. Right. Uh, so so some of the views that are being touted as extreme are held by a much larger uh, number of Republicans. Um, and, and so I guess on that point, I, I would agree with the with the person who emailed. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's focus on our Iowa congressional delegation, the first all Republican uh, congressional delegation in decades. Um, let's just rewind a bit, make sure we're all on the same page. Democrats staved off a red wave nationally. However, here in Iowa, uh, a strong red wave up and down the ballot. Governor Reynolds easily reelected the legislature. Um, the Iowa GOP increasing its majorities in both chambers, now having a supermajority in the Iowa Senate. Uh, for instance, if you want a preview of the, the legislative session due to start next week and you missed our program yesterday, why don't you just download the IPR podcast uh, from yesterday with your IPR app or find River to River at iowapublicradio.org to listen to that uh, broadcast, that preview. Back to Iowa's red wave, um, Iowa's Attorney General, Tom Miller, 
first elected to that position back in the 1970s, unseated. Also, likewise, uh, Iowa State Treasurer, uh, Democrat Michael Fitzgerald, first elected to that position in the early 1980s, unseated. Um, And also in the U.S. House, I already mentioned the Senate, two-term Congresswoman Democrat Cindy Axney of Iowa's 3rd District, ousted. Um, And and so um, uh, Republicans holding on in their reelections to the state's other three U.S. House seats. We have U.S. Representative-elect Zach Nunn uh, due to be sworn into office when this other business finally takes place. It will mark the first time since the 1950s that Iowa's congressional delegation will be comprised entirely of Republicans. Uh, Let's hear from Zach Nunn. He's been spending his first days in D.C. as representative-elect. Last month, the middle of December, he spoke with KCCI after officially being declared winner in the race against outgoing Representative Cindy Axney. We've got members on the Appropriations Committee, so deciding on how we scale back this vast overspending of the federal government. We have members on Ways and Means who are going to really be able to control our tax policy. Uh, We're going to have members who are most likely to serve on energy and commerce. Okay, Uh, Chris, let me go to you. What do we know about the politics of Representative-elect Zach Nunn and and, uh, how our congressional delegation uh, fits into uh, what's happening in in D.C. now? Yeah, I think what we've heard so far from uh, Representative-elect Nunn is that, you know, he's, as he said there, he's going to focus on uh, government spending. We've heard statements in the past talking about um, working on reducing prescription drug costs, something that he wants to work with Senator Grassley on doing uh, more of. Um, And, you know, really kind of fitting in the, the mold of a, of an anti sort of big what he would call it maybe big government uh, Republican and really focusing on government spending. There's been talk about uh, addressing uh, immigration, mm-hmm. um, talk about uh, biofuels and obviously the farm bill is going to be coming up. So, you know, I think a lot of the, maybe the more traditional stances, Republican stances on a number of uh, these big policy issues in terms of having an all Republican congressional delegation from Iowa. Yeah, as you mentioned, that's really been since the 1950s, I think 1955. Uh, and, you know, again, part of it's going to depend on how the the leadership in the U.S. House looks. Uh, so far, I haven't checked for the fourth ballot today, but on the first three ballots, all four uh, House members, Republican House members from Iowa voted for mm-hmm. uh, Kevin McCarthy. Um, so, you know, you can take that for, for whatever that might mean. Um, but, you know, they, they will have a majority in the, in the U.S. House. But again, it's, it's divided government. And, you know, that's that in the past, what we've seen, at least going back to the early 2000s, is that divided government has essentially meant legislative gridlock. So it may be the case where we see Republican members, um, not just from Iowa, but across the country, introducing bills to have some credit claiming, which is what all members of Congress do, uh, with, you know, good knowledge that those bills may not go anywhere, given given the divided government that we currently have. Yeah. Signaling is is exactly is what is, is the term often used for the bills that will uh, never become law, have no chance of it. Uh, Sarah, uh, Representative Zach, uh, elect Zach Nunn and our congressional delegation here, all Republican. Uh, what are your thoughts as, as uh, we um, have seen the latest Congress convene? Yeah, I agree with Chris that his policy positions sound like a sort of traditional tax and spend Reagan era Republican. Um, he also, interestingly, in talking about energy independence for Iowa, uh, 
so promoting uh, biofuels, which we've seen um, other members of our delegation promoting. But he also uh, noted that he doesn't think energy uh, produced by the U.S. should be sold to countries like China or Russia or countries that aid our enemies. Um, and, and he explicitly referred to the Ukraine war. So I thought that was, um, you know, given that there has been some Republican division in terms of support for Ukraine, um, he, he's signaling that he's coming down on, on the side of supporting Ukraine. So I think that's uh, an important thing to note also. Um, and then, yeah, I think the other, uh, other policy that the Iowa delegation is, is promoting you know, is addressing illegal immigration, but mm -hmm. this is something that uh, Democrats also have as a priority for the, the new Congress. So, so I would expect, I mean, they have, parties have very different views on what that reform looks like, but yeah. I would expect to see some legislation attempts on that issue. Yeah, and, and this has plagued the country. Immi lack of immigration reform, overhaul, whatever you want to call it, um, Sarah, has plagued the U.S., has plagued our economy for years. Uh, in broad terms, perhaps, why can't the parties solve this problem, especially at a time when we have a severe worker shortage? Yeah, so I think part of it is, a, you know, it, go, it goes back to ideology. And so, um, you know, if you think that people coming into the country represent you know, if you, if you frame that uh, immigration as a threat to your values or your way of life, mm -hmm. um, right, then, then that calls for, you know, border walls, uh, really restrictive immigration policies. The recent um, Supreme Court decision essentially upheld Title 42, which, which was a saying that, that migration at the southern border could be restricted uh, during the pandemic, um, so even the Supreme Court, right, um, coming down on the side of about 19 uh, Republican governors uh, arguing that that policy should be extended. Um, and Gorsuch and Jackson in their dissent said, you know, that uh, we are a court of law, not policymakers of last resort. And, and I think, you know, their, their point was that the current crisis is not about the pandemic. It's about you know, it's being caused by other crises in Latin America yeah. and beyond. And so, you know, we can't take a policy that was designed from the pandemic era to be applied to the current crisis. And and they're saying that the Supreme Court should not be the one making that decision. Yeah. yeah but left in place for now by the Supreme Court. Chris, you commented briefly earlier uh, on this mm -hmm. pandemic era policy allowing U.S. officials to rapidly expel migrants caught on the U.S.-Mexico border. Any further thoughts before we move on? No, I mean, I would. I guess I would agree with Sarah that you know the the narrative around immigration has become so polarized, and you know there have been attempts to to try to break through to to, to forge a compromise here. Um, you know, back I think just prior to the 2012 presidential election, there was the so-called Gang of Eight uh, in the U.S. Senate that were a bipartisan group that tried to push this through. But it, it really does come down to this this narrative around immigration has become so polarized. And you think about that going back to the 2016 presidential election, where the, the issue of immigration was really kind of front and center in a very polarized mm -hmm. discussion of the issue. And, the, and, and as a result, you know, you fast forward six, six and a half, seven years later, and, and we're, we're in the same, we're having the same discussion as Sarah mentioned. Mm -hmm. If you've just joined us, it's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River, about 10 minutes left with Chris Larimer of the UNI and Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa. Well, 
He's uh, accused of being a serial fabulist. Uh, there's a term we haven't heard in our news lately, or I have not at all, ever, I think. Let me quote from the Washington Post today about his first day in Congress, uh, the first day for a certain New York representative-elect in our news. Looking very much like a freshman at a prep school in hell, Congressman-elect George Santos wore a black uh, backpack, a periwinkle sweater underneath his Navy jacket, and a sullen face with darting, evasive eyes as if looking to see if anyone on Capitol Hill was going to accuse him of yet another lie about the basic facts of his existence. A posse of journalists assembled before 9 a.m. Tuesday to stake out Santos's new office on the first floor of the Longworth House office building. It was last month that the New York Times outlined apparent fabrications in George Santos's work and educational backgrounds. He apparently did not work as at uh, Goldman Sachs or Citigroup, as claimed, did not go to a college in New York City or to New York University. And now the accused serial fabulist, I'll use that word again, is now being investigated by the Attorney General of New York, the uh, district attorneys of Nassau County and Queens and the government of Brazil. Uh, He has denied any wrongdoing. Uh, uh, He told WABC Radio in New York last week, If I disappointed anyone by my resume embellishment, I'm sorry. And he added, I will be sworn in. I will take office. Let's listen to a little bit of uh, George Santos. Uh, uh, He was booed, by the way, yesterday after casting a vote in favor of installing Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. He did speak on Tucker Carlson tonight as Tulsi Gabbard filled in. Let's listen. We can debate my my resume and how I worked with firms such as Goldman. Is it debatable or is it just false? no, is it's it very, debatable no, or it's is very it just debatable. false? I, no, no, it's not false at all. It's it's debatable. I can I can sit down and explain to you what you can do in private equity, in in capital intro, via servicing limited partners and general partners, and we can have this discussion that's going to go way above the American people's head. But that's not what I campaigned on. I campaigned on delivering results wow. for the American people by, by lowering inflation. I can sit down and if you want to have that discussion, I'd be glad to Tulsi to explain that to you Co- and make sure that we 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 settle the score. Representative-elect George Santos yesterday on Fox News. Uh, Chris, uh, what do you make of this controversy? Well, it, it's, it's unreal. I mean, the, the, as, as you mentioned, the, when the New York Times broke that story and since, you know, just the, the amount of fabrication in his, his resume, really up and down his resume, um, you know, from his educational level or education ex- uh, background, excuse me, to his, his work experience, um, but you know what? What's interesting here is that you, we have not heard, at least I have not seen, much in ter- way of statements from uh, Minority Leader Speaker or Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Um, and as you mentioned, he was at George Santos was at the Capitol yesterday uh, to be sworn in, and, and new members will be sworn in once the Speaker is elected, whenever that might be. Mm-hmm. But to not really hear a lot of uh, to hear many statements from uh, Republican members of the House, they don't have a lot of options in terms of not be, not you know allowing him to be sworn in. But I think you know it's clear that the pressure is, is mounting on uh, George Santos, and I think the pressure is certainly mounting on the Republican Party to do something uh, regarding those statements and regarding all the the fabrications on his resume. Yeah. Sarah, comment on the George Santos controversy here. So many facets here. We don't have much time, but what what stands out for you? Well, I think 
I mean, his lies continued yesterday where he said he had been sworn in, even though a speaker <laughs> not had not possible, been elected. Not right? possible so without he, a speaker, so yeah. He, so he sent out this email and then to his supporters and then recanted it, I guess. Uh, so so this is continuing. Um, he, he, I mean, it's interesting when I watch the, the, uh, uh, the House uh, proceedings yesterday, you know, nobody was sitting near him or talking to him. So there was at least in terms of Republican body language, like an effort to not engage with that guy, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, But yeah, I mean, this is the danger of embracing a a post-truth approach, right? Is that if you don't think there's truth in who won an election, then why, why can't a person make up their you know, who they are in terms of being a political candidate. So, and, so, so what you're saying, Sarah, is this is a logical extension of the trends we've been seeing. Uh, also, uh, we, we've had now a lot of documents about uh, Donald Trump's taxes and uh, his, um, his claims as a candidate uh, to, to be um, the, the type of businessman that we see in his taxes. Uh, he was not. He, he lost a lot of money. Absolutely. And, you know, his claims about his you know, finances and taxes have been shown to be false. Uh, His claim that he called for 10,000 troops uh, to, you know, that he wanted them there on January 6th. The January 6th committee has shown that to be false. Um, So, you know, and yeah, Trump was documented telling something on the order of 36,000 lies, right, as president. Um, So, so, you know, this, this is, I don't think it's surprising that we're seeing this. I think in New York context, you know, his claim that he was not only Jewish, but descended from refugees who fled the Holocaust, like that uh, has been, you know, people in the district who are Jewish are obviously very upset about that. Um, And I think that that is going to, he's going to face some backlash, um, given where he's, you know, the where he, uh, the people he represents. Um, but I also think, right, like he did admit that he had, he had uh, engaged in check fraud in Brazil and Brazil is now knowing where he's located, like uh, going to prosecute that if possible. Yeah. But the, the company he worked for that was called Harbor City Capital, that company was also accused of being involved in a Ponzi scheme by the SEC. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think this guy is a is a grifter. You know, he, he's a liar. He's been doing it his whole career, and, and this is just the latest iteration. Yeah, Chris, some of our listeners may be wondering, you know, isn't there a law that prohibits a candidate from, I mean, to this extent, fabricating large parts of their uh, bio? Um, because, after all, that is what the only re- way voters... Um, know, uh, you know, how to separate candidates. Or I, I guess also we can say this is a failure of local news media in, in that part of New York. Yeah. And there there was a story about that. Um, I think it was Maggie Haberman from the New York Times talking about, you know, is this, what does this say about, uh, you know, local news media? Uh, but, I, you know, for, for Republican um, members of the U.S. House, you know, they, like I said, they are really limited in what they can do. If he's met the qualifications for being a member of the U.S. House, and obviously he received uh, more votes than his opponent, they they really, in terms of opening up investigations, are, are, are somewhat limited. Um, but as Sarah mentioned, you know, and, and you mentioned too, that we're now seeing federal authority or other authorities getting involved. And so it may come a point where, his constituents start to 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 demand that he step aside. Yeah. 
Uh, in the yeah, and he, he, <clears throat> go ahead, sir. Well, I was just going to say he could also be prosecuted on campaign spending violations yeah. because well, well, he loaned himself seven hundred thousand dollars, right? Which we like, where did this come from, right? Mm -hmm. he, he claimed he was helping people buy yachts or something. Mm -hmm. um, so who who provided that money to him is a question. And this is a guy that failed to pay rent, right, in 2015 and 2017. He'd been taken to court multiple times for not paying past debts. So that's another question is not only uh, how did he spend the money in the campaign, you know, something on the order of $40,000 in plane tickets, which is a level that we normally only see for someone in leadership positions in Congress. Um, so, so there's so many questions about where did this money come from? How was it spent? And was that within, you know, did he follow the rules that's expected for campaign financing. Sarah, we didn't have time to lean on your foreign policy credentials here, but perhaps in a few seconds you can give us your outlook as we approach the one-year anniversary of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. That's next month. Yeah, I think the war of attrition is going to continue. Uh, I don't see a, a peace agreement that's going to be possible. Russia has obviously been using a lot of Iranian drones uh, in attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure, including about 80 attacks in the first two days of this year. Um, and and the Ukraine is in, you know, you, the United States and France are investing in providing better air defense yeah. uh, for Ukraine. And, uh, and we also just saw a Ukrainian attack that killed at least 89 soldiers. Right. Uh, that, that's what the Russians are saying right now. Uh, we have to go, Sarah. We'll look forward to talking with you and Chris uh, in uh, future shows here in 2023. Sarah Mitchell, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Chris Larimer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Northern Iowa. Chris and Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks to our listeners for your input, uh, Sarah and Chris. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. River to River, today produced by Danny Gere. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.